Good morning, everybody. That was a little lackluster, but I'll accept it. No, it's great to see everybody this morning. Uh, I mean, any time that we can come together and, and worship and receive God's Word together is a great and glorious time, and so I'm excited to have this opportunity to come and preach with you again. Uh, I, this has been such a blessing for, for me uh, and our family to even be here, but it's been a blessing for me to come and bring the Word for you uh, the, these past several weeks, and so... Uh, thank you for for having me. Um, but while I was I was reading this scripture and I was I was thinking back, uh, it, it got me thinking. I, I was processing even even yesterday. Uh, I had this wonderful opportunity yesterday to get together uh, with uh, uh, several of my friends that I went to high school with. And uh, you know what it's like anytime you get together with people that, that, that you grew up with. You start sharing stories and laughing about the time that you're at lunch and that tree branch fall, fell on the new freshman at school. Ah, look what happened to him. But you start sharing all those stories that made you laugh back when you were in school and all those good times. But there was this, uh, this one thing that, that kept recurring all the way through high school within our group was we were part of... The, the lunchtime hacky sack group. Uh, and for those of you that don't know what hacky sack is, it's this, this little uh, often woven bag full of beans or beads or whatever. Uh, I actually had one of the, the, the fancier leather ones so it didn't fall apart as quickly. But you, you, you get in a circle and, and you start kicking it around and all. And, and I was never that coordinated, but I could at least hold my own in a group. But we, we would share these stories and laugh about all the, the good times because we would play every single day at lunch. And the thing that was uh, really interesting, even now looking back, was... Uh, uh, our, our circle that had the, uh, everyone come together for Hacky Sack, uh, it was different from what you would expect in a, in, on a normal high school campus because it, it wasn't just the, the, we were part of the, like the rock and roll, like the grunge crew, it was the, the mid to late 90s, so with all the flannels and the baggy jeans and everything, that was, that was our, our group of friends, but the hacky sack circle, it was that, and it was the rednecks and the, the preppy kids and, and even some of like the, 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 the kids that thought they were thugs, like all these people would come together and because, and here's the, the funny thing, this hacky sack showed no partiality. It didn't care what your background was. This hacky sack did not care if you had just aced your calculus test or if you had just completely tanked your English test. This hacky sack did not care. And, and so, but it was this thing that we could all come together and just let all of our worries go and be part of this group without, without boundaries or without uh, status. Um, and in a much greater way, this is what we're looking at when we look at this passage in James this morning because the gospel is much greater than just a hacky sack. But the gospel shows no partiality. Uh, it's, the, the gospel is true and powerful and changes lives regardless of what your background is, regardless of what culture you might come from, regardless of what ethnicity, even though all of us, or the majority of us in here are pretty much on the same page, the gospel is bigger than us. 
And so James is writing this, uh, this passage of encouragement, uh, as we've talked about over the past few weeks, to these persecuted believers that have fled for their lives in the dispersion. After the stoning of Stephen, they, just, uh, they grabbed what they could and then just ran for their lives. And this is the group that James is writing to in this letter. And he's saying that the Christian faith is contrary to the wisdom of this world. He's saying that the, the Christian faith is, is not the same standard that the rest of the world applies. And as we were just uh, beginning to unpack last week, that the Gospel calls believers not just to hear these things, but to do them. That a proper understanding of faith should lead to proper action as well. And so it's within that framework that James starts talking about uh, partiality and favoritism. And in this passage, James is saying that every, every believer, because again, he's writing specifically to believers here, he's saying that every believer should grace, graciously choose to love others. It's not an option. He's saying that every person who holds themselves according to the Christian faith, should graciously choose to love. Like that hacky sack, but on a much grander scale, on a much more cosmic scale, without regard to status or culture, that you and I are called to graciously love. And there are three ways in this passage that we do this. You do this by remembering God's measurements You do this by remembering God's mandates. And you do this by remembering God's mercy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin to unpack Your Word uh, and what You have for us this morning, God, I pray that You would pour out Your Spirit in this place. God, I pray uh, that this would not just be uh, me coming up here in my own efforts, that this would not just be my own ability this, this would not be a collection of my thoughts and musings, but God, that I would bring Your Word and Your Spirit would speak through me, that Your Word uh, would, would impact lives, that You would soften hearts and transform our minds. God, I do not have the ability to do that. And so I pray that Your Spirit would be with us now, that You would be our hope, that You would be the one that changes our hearts. And I pray all of this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Now, for those of you with any access at all to the internet, you might be familiar with uh, this story that's been passed around for the past several years. I've seen it kind of make a resurgence on, on Facebook and social media, but I remember back in the days when this story was being passed around in emails on when people still had things like Yahoo and AOL. But there was this story of this pastor, and the, the typical name that's used in this story is Pastor Jeremiah Stepik. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's a fictional name, so I'm going to go with that. But he, he's the, a new pastor of this church in town, and before, he, before anyone else gets a chance to meet him, he shows up to the church dressed as a homeless person. 
And so uh, the, the rest of the church has pretty much written this guy off because of his appearance and what he looks like and possibly even what he smells like. And then uh, he, he walks up to the pulpit and, and underneath his, his homeless rags he has his suit and he begins to preach and just completely floors the church. And while it's a wonderful story and it reads and it tells well, the problem is the story itself is not completely true. Because it's a collection of several other stories uh, that actually happened in real life uh, uh, with things that happened at a, uh, the, the Princeton Seminary in the 70s. And, uh, and I actually have names here for Reverend Willie Lyle in June 2013 and Bishop David Musselman in November of 2013. That, there are, that all of these real-life events kind of contributed to put this story together. Um, but the gist of the story is still true, that it is not that hard for us to believe the concept of rejecting other people based on their appearance, based on their status, based on what they look like, or even what we perceive them to be. And that's what James is talking about as he he opens up this passage on partiality. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, oftentimes we read through that quickly and just, oh yeah, he's saying don't discriminate, you know, be, don't just be nice to the, the rich guy, but we have to be nice to poor people too. And we often just kind of rush through that without unpacking it. But in verse 4, he, he says this isn't just some casual thing. He says that you have become judges with evil thoughts. That this isn't just some... <laughs> Oops, we did it again. No, he's saying when you do this, when you are showing partiality, when you show favoritism, just based off of appearance alone, you are becoming a judge with evil thoughts. Now, I don't know about you, but I often do not like to describe myself as a person of evil thoughts. When I list out my my qualifications on, on a resume or a job application, I never think, hmm, I should really let them know that I'm a judge with evil thoughts. Like, that's not something that we want to use to describe ourselves. But James is saying, when you do that, you make yourself a judge with evil thoughts. And it's not just because you're not being nice, but it's the reality that all people are made in the image of an infinite God. It's the, the doctrine of Imago Dei. That we are not just cosmic accidents. That you and I are not just happenstance. That uh, life itself is not just a coincidence. We are made in the image of God Himself. And when you are rejecting people for whatever reason, based on favoritism, partiality, what someone's status is like, what someone looks like, you are rejecting the image of the Creator God Himself and saying that what God made and that person there is not worthy of my affection or my attention. 
And James is saying that that is evil. In verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? This is almost a direct echo of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. For, for those of you that like to, to take down notes, going back to, to Matthew 5.3, if you want to go, go back and, and, and make sure that I'm, I'm telling this correctly, which I like to believe that I am, but in Matthew, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For the people that are lacking in this earthly world that have nowhere else to turn but God Himself, Jesus says those are the people who understand the riches of heaven. They will inherit that kingdom because their hope is not in this earthly world, not in this earthly stuff. They will inherit the kingdom. And James is echoing that. He says that's the standard that God holds to. That is the measurement that God uses. And so earlier when I, when I mentioned that we need to remember God's measurements, this is what I'm talking about. This standard of measurement that God uses to base people on. It's not off of how much wealth you have accumulated. It's not how much power you have. It's not uh, what neighborhood you live in. It's not how many nice things you can do. But it's your dependency on God alone and not your own effort or not your own things. For those who are poor in spirit that have to trust and rest and rely on a living God. That is the measurement that God says those are the people that will inherit the kingdom. And that is completely contrary to to the world's standard. And I don't want to just make this be like, well, it's, it's us versus the world, the church versus the world. But that's the reality of what is going on here because the Christian faith is completely contrary to what the world says is successful. It's not about stuff or status, what your last name is how much money you might have in your wallet or in your debit card or how much student debt you might have accrued. accrued. I can't speak that well. Those things do not determine your eternal status, but it's the dependency on a living God. In verse 6, sorry, I lost my place here. But you... You have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? We often place our hope and our trust in these things that not only will not fulfill and satisfy, but are often the very things that betray us and are attempting to destroy us. And maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking to yourself, well, I, I don't, this really isn't that much of a struggle for me, this whole poor, rich uh, distinction. Uh, maybe that isn't your struggle. 
But I want you to take a moment of, of self-examination to, to really check your heart. And, and I want to ask you, who are you judging by the world's standards versus God's standards? I don't know if you've noticed, but the past couple of years have, have been increasingly uh, chaotic, uh, even uh, divisive as far as how people relate to one another. Uh, especially on something like social media, but with just with things like ethnicity and arguing build a wall or not build a wall or, or who, who is allowed to who are, who are we going to allow to be an American citizen or where someone is from, what kind of uh, uh, clothing a person wears and, and not just casual everyday but a lot, of, a lot of us in this room, I think would have, and I hate to just make assumptions, but I'm throwing this out there. If there were someone that walked in here just in full Muslim guard, garb and, and, and head wraps and, and, and everything, I think it would put several people in here just un, unease, discomfort, just based off of, of the way that a person is dressed. Are you judging someone according to the world's standards, uh, according to uh, someone else's status, what job they may or may not have? Do you look up to a certain person because what they may or may not have? What neighborhood they might live in? What area of the Charleston uh, region that they might be a part of? Or to really just kind of press the thumb on it, who someone may or may not have voted for? What bumper sticker someone might have on their car? Are you judging someone according to the world's standards of what the world is saying this is acceptable or not? Or are you accepting people based off of God's measurement of dependency on Him alone? Because James says, show no partiality. And to remember that blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones that are rejected, unloved, those that are lacking. Are you looking at the people around you with Western American eyes? Are you looking at them with Christian eyes? That these are people made in the image of God. And then, moving on, you see that you need to graciously choose to love by remembering God's mandates. And James goes on to say that if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And he's saying, uh, if you're doing that, good job. But there's more to it. Because the law forces you to remember the one who gives the law. Uh, recently, uh, in fact, just a, a few days ago, I got this thing in the mail from my, uh, uh, from my car insurance, uh, Progressive if you really care, but it's called uh, Snapshot, and it's this little thing that you plug up underneath the dashboard of your car, and it, it kind of records your driving style, like how fast you go and how hard you brake and things like that. And at the end of, uh, like I think it's a 30-day 
um, measuring period. You send it back in, and according to how you drive, it, it affects your insurance rates. You, if you're a bad driver, it's going to go up. Uh, if you're a, a good driver, hopefully your rates will go down. But ever since I plugged it in, I am painfully aware of the way that I drive. I'm like, oh, I'm going to start backing up. I'm hitting this brake like an extra like 30 feet out and be like, I'm going to slow down a little bit more. Or, you know, I'm going to, I'm not, as soon as that light changes, I'm not just going to hit the gas. I'm going to like slow. I'm painfully aware of how well I am or am not keeping the law. Because this thing is watching everything that I do. And that's just for my car insurance. And James is pointing to the law of an eternal God. And he says, when you remember this law that God Himself has given, it makes you painfully aware of how well you do or do not keep the law. Again, he says, if you're doing this, if you're loving others as you love yourselves, good, that's great. But, in verse 9, but... If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, quick And this is actually going to be uh, participatory. I'm going to ask for a quick show of hands just to to illustrate a point. Who in here has ever told a lie in your life at all? All right. Who in here has ever stolen anything? All right, now here's the problem because everyone in here just admitted to being a liar, so I can't trust if you do. If you didn't raise your hand, I can't trust you. And I know that sounds silly, but James, not just James himself, the the Word itself, God in the flesh, Jesus says that if you break one aspect of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. Every person in here just admitting that you've at least told a lie in your life. We didn't even get into the, the really devious things of murder or adultery. But Scripture says that if you're guilty of breaking one part of the law, you are guilty of breaking all of it. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And right now you might be thinking, well, how is this instructing me to love other people? Because right now it just sounds uh, uh, like you're condemning me. Right now it just sounds uh, like you're making me feel guilty. But here's the thing. It's easy to love other people when when they're easy to love, if that makes sense. When when other people are, are loving to us, it's easy to love them back. It's hard to love people when it hurts to love them. When you feel abandoned or betrayed. The parent who walked out on you when you were a child. 
or maybe told you that, that you just weren't good enough. For the spouse that cheated on you and, and betrayed your trust. For those people in here, because just statistically speaking, someone in here has been abused in some way. And the hurt and the emotional scars that linger from that. How do you love when it hurts like that? And I want you to get something straight here. I'm not saying that it's easy to love those people. I'm not saying just forget it like it never happened. The Gospel just wipes it all away. Just start loving them. What I am saying is that it it will be hard to love when it hurts. Because all people are broken and sinful, not as an excuse for their sin, not saying, well, you know, you were hurt, but eh, they're sinners, it happens. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying the reality is that you are a broken sinner as well. That you might not have done those things, but you are just as guilty and condemned and deserving of punishment as the people who have done those atrocities. And that sounds offensive to our ears, to our souls, to our culture to say, well, even though that you might not have ever abused somebody, your lie makes you just as guilty in the eyes of God as the person who is abused. In Psalm 51, David says, Against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. And he's writing this after uh, having Bathsheba's husband murdered in war and taken his wife for himself. And after all of that sin, David says, God, against you alone have I sinned. His sin did affect other people, but ultimately his sin is against the infinite Creator God. And so, when I'm pointing you to God's law, to God's mandates, I'm not saying that God's law makes it easy to love people. But when you remember that you are just as guilty, that you are just as broken as the person who hurt you, it evens the playing field. All of a sudden, it's not, well, look at them. What have they done? But remembering all of us, every person in here is broken and guilty of sin and desperately in need of redemption and restoration. In Scripture, it said, in in Romans, Paul writes that the wages of sin is death. Every person in here, every person who has ever been born is born guilty of sin and deserving death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Pointing to the law reminds us of our brokenness, but it also reminds us of the graciousness that God showed to broken, sinful people who were still against Him. 
But not only do we need to remember God's measurements and His mandates, but you have to remember God's mercy. Going to verse 12, James writes, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. It's not enough to just say that you believe these things. It's not enough just to say, yeah, that Jesus was a great teacher. He did some really great stuff. It's not even enough to say, yeah, I believe He's the Son of God. James is saying it's not enough just to speak it, but to act it. To believe and let that belief lead to an action of faith. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is one of the most difficult statements. Because he's saying that if you do not show mercy, mercy will not be shown to you. If you do not show mercy, it's because there is not an understanding of the mercy that was shown to you. Because you have been forgiven of infinite cosmic treason against an infinite holy God. In the face of that, you are free to forgive and to show mercy to others because you were shown mercy first. Jesus Himself says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And that's Matthew 6, if you're taking notes. But what Jesus is saying, and and James is echoing here, is, and I've used this illustration uh, for, for years. I've been doing youth ministry for a long time, and I love visual representations because it helps things to sink in. But what James and, and Jesus have said is that understanding this relationship affects this relationship. When you understand what, what your relationship, what your status is between you and God, and your sinfulness and the mercy that He has shown, it's going to directly impact this relationship, your relationships with the world around you, the people around you, when you understand that you have been forgiven of something infinite, then that frees you to forgive others of the hurt and the trespasses that they have caused. Again, I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm saying that it's only possible because God forgave first. God showed mercy first. And as James writes, mercy triumphs over judgment. That might even be the most beautiful statement in this passage. That forgiveness and graciousness and mercy is far more powerful than judgment will ever be. We love to judge. We're good at it. But remember your status before God and the mercy that He showed you. And when you take that moment to remember the mercy that God has given you, how? How can you dare judge someone else for something that they may have done to you? 
And so I want to, to ask as, as we start wrapping this up, when these difficulties arrive, when these conflicts will arrive, uh, when, when the, uh, the opportunities to, to show favoritism or, or judgment uh, uh, crop up in your life, I want you to, to stop and think, are you going to, to hold this other person to the world's standard or to God's measurement? Are you going to look with, with, your, your, uh, with your American eyes? Are you going to look with Christian eyes? When confronted with your own sin, do you justify what you have done? Or do you remember God's law, God's mandates? Do you remember your sin and what it cost? And the mercy that He has shown you. And when that desire to judge comes, will you hold judgment over them? Or will you let mercy triumph over judgment? Let us pray. Gracious God, we come before You this morning thankful for Your Word, thankful for this time that we can come and just sit in Your presence, that we can sit at the foot of Your throne and sing praises to You, God. And God, I confess, even as I'm, I'm, I'm reading and, and preaching this sermon, I, I'm offended by my own actions because I don't always hold and apply and act out on this as I should. And so God, I pray that, that You would not let us uh, rest in a, a state of, uh, of condemnation, but God, that we would remember that You have set us free. That for those who hold to the name of Christ alone, You have shown great and infinite mercy. And as we leave here today, Remind us of the mercy that You have shown to us. And we pray, God, let mercy triumph over judgment. And we pray in the merciful and victorious name of Christ. Amen.